The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, this morning. We're going to move around a bit in, in the Scriptures this morning. We'll look at Luke 22 and 24 and also find our way over to John 21. Uh, but you can just find your way to Luke 22 for now. We come this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. It is for us the the foundational truth for Christianity. It is the truth that that unites every Christian together. Commentator Bruce Barton writes this. He says, Christians can look very different from one another. They can hold uh, widely varying beliefs about politics, lifestyle, and even theology. But one central belief unites and inspires all true Christians. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's true, isn't it? It's true. You look about this room and you look about the broader uh, Christian world and, and we're all different. But the one thing that unites us is we believe that Christ who died and was buried was raised to life from the grave three days later. And that makes all the difference in the world In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 and following, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. That if, if this isn't true... If Christ isn't raised from the grave, then we're fools for being here and doing what we're doing this morning. People shouldn't look to us as anything good, anything other than fools, really. We're the kind of people who ought to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus means everything or it means nothing. Nobody came face to face with that reality more than a man called Simon Peter. The final days of, of Jesus' life and ministry really for Simon Peter were a roller coaster ride of emotions and experiences. From Thursday night when they had gathered with Jesus in the upper room and they shared the Passover meal, events begin to unravel pretty quickly. And it's pretty obvious early on that as things begin to, to, to go haywire, Peter is not prepared. He's not prepared for what's to come even though Jesus has warned him time and time again. This morning, for the time that we have together, I want us to to just look at the passion events through the eyes of this man, Simon Peter. Through his eyes and through his experience. I I want you to see from the word of God how the resurrection of Jesus changed everything for this man. Absolutely everything. And I hope and I pray that in seeing that, you'll come to the realization that it can change everything for you too. If you look to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31, 
we see sort of where Peter is when all of this begins to unravel. Just on the brink of everything going sideways, this is Peter's condition. Peter, we're going to see, is a prideful, boastful, spiritually arrogant man. And it becomes evident pretty quickly. Luke writes, Jesus is speaking to to Simon Peter. Just a quick moment of context here. The Passover meal is complete. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, the words that we read just a few moments ago. And the disciples immediately have commenced to arguing over who's going to have the highest office in Jesus' kingdom. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus turns and he speaks directly to Peter. And he says to him these words, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Matthew, the gospel writer, in Matthew 26, verse 33, adds one other little note. He says, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I want you to think about Peter's condition of heart here at the outset of this. Before Christ is arrested, before there's any crucifixion, before there's any resurrection, moving into these events, Peter is a pride-filled, boastful, spiritually arrogant human being. Jesus' statement to him should have caused Peter to pause. It should have caused him to stop and to take a deep breath. What do you mean, Jesus? Satan wants to sift me like wheat. What does it mean that, that you've prayed for me that, that my faith won't fail? But Peter, is he's completely filled to overflowing with a, a nasty sort of spiritual pride that can infect the heart of any believer. And he overlooks all of those things, and he just boldly declares, I'm ready to go with you, Jesus, both to, to prison and to death. That's what I'm ready to do. I'm not worried about Satan. You don't need to pray for me. I'm a rock. I'm ready to die right now. Let's do it. I'm unshakable. Jesus, the, these other guys, they might be flakes. They might be willing to, 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 to flake out on you. If the pressure comes to them, they're probably not going to make it. But listen, you need to understand, there's one guy in this crowd of 12 that's going to make it, and that's me. I'm with you to the end. I'll never fall away. They might all wash out, but not me. What a boastful, prideful position to be in. And what a foolish place to be in for a man. Ministry has absolutely gone to this man's head. He's forgotten how weak and how frail he truly is. He's forgotten how deep the roots of sin go down into his own heart. And he's severely overstated the, the condition of his own faith and his own commitment to Christ. But this is how spiritual pride destroys. It blinds a person to reality. 
It makes them believe things about themselves that are not true. It convinces us that, that, that we're better than we really are. It blinds us to our own weakness and our own frailty and our own dependency. It convinces us that, that we know everything and that we can handle anything. It assures us that, that by comparison, we're far superior to everybody else around us. And that's right where Peter was. In fact, his, his pride is so over the top, it's so over the, the top that he really is implicitly here correcting Christ. It's not enough that he, that he judged his own self superior to all of his peers, right? That's prideful enough. But really what he's doing here is he's acting like he understands himself and the situation better than Jesus does. The Bible has so much to say about this kind of spiritual pride. We could go to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, which simply says this, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Or we could flip a couple pages to Proverbs 16, 18, which tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Peter's going to understand, in short order, the kind of disgrace that comes with pride. And he's going to understand the kind of destruction that it causes. But Peter's arrogant pride is relatively short-lived. Because as events begin to sort of unfold pretty quickly, Peter finds out very, very rapidly that he is not who he thinks he is. In really a matter of time, a really short matter of time, this spiritual pride is quickly replaced with an altogether different sort of an experience. His pride becomes abject fear. Luke 22, beginning in verse 54. Then they seized Jesus and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he sat down and sat down together. Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You're also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another said, Certainly. This man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. My, how the mighty fall, right? My, how pride gets crushed by fear in a moment. When the mob uh, comes to, uh, to arrest Jesus and they carry him away, Peter is absolutely terrified. He, as Jesus is being dragged away, Peter scurries away like a, like a frightened little child. We're told that he's following at a distance. He's, he's, the image is Peter sort of hiding in the shadows. He, he wants to see what's going to happen, but he desperately doesn't want to be identified in any way with Christ. He's horrified that he's going to be identified with Christ and that, that somebody's going to remember that he was a, a leader in Jesus' ministry team. And if he's identified, they likely are going to come for him too. And so he sort of drifts into the shadows and he follows all the way to the courtyard of the high priest's residence where the trials are going to begin to commence for Christ. 
And at this point, it's early in the morning. It's cold outside. So the, the soldiers and some other people who are bystanders there, build a, they build a fire in the courtyard to provide some warmth. And Peter sort of huddles around the fire with, with the other people, sort of just to, to keep warm and to blend in with the crowd. The problem is, he's a Galilean, and it's hard for a Galilean to sort of blend in in this context. But before very long, the thing that he feared most takes place, doesn't it? There's a little servant girl who's there. She identifies him and she calls him out. John tells us that this servant girl was, was sort of acting as a, a gate guard to the inner courtyard where this all took place. And so she had seen him come in and admitted him in. And she's probably been thinking about that face. Like, I know him from somewhere. I've seen that face somewhere. And all of a sudden around the fire, in the, the glimmer of the firelight, the light bulb comes on. And she remembers who he is. I know you. This man, he was with him. He was with him. And in a moment, all of, all of Peter's previous bravado sort of flies right out the window, and his fear drives him to flat-out lie. Flat-out lie. Woman, I don't know him. She accused him of being with Jesus, and Peter turns around and denies not only that he was with him, but also what? He says he doesn't even, he doesn't even know him. He doesn't even know him. I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. Let's go to prison and die right now. Woman, I don't even know him. The Greek word here for know is not even the, the normal term used, gnosko, which means to, to sort of to know by experience. Peter uses a different word. It's a more general term that simply means to, to, to sort of have information in general about something. And what Peter is, is, is actually saying here is not just that I don't know by experience. He's using a broader world, and he's saying, I don't know anything about this guy. I don't even know anything about him. I have no information about this man. That guy, I don't know him. Peter spent three years with Jesus. Three years. He was an integral part of the, the ministry team. Perhaps the most integral part apart from Christ himself. Not only did he know Jesus, but he knew him better than almost anybody. And here, I don't know him. It was a complete repudiation of Christ. And I wonder, can a follower of Jesus fall any lower than that? To just flat out say in public, I have no idea who Jesus is. I don't know anything about that guy. You can't get more distant from Christ than that and to deny knowing him. Well, apparently that settles the conversation for a moment, but a little later somebody else says, hey, I recognize you, you're, you're, one of, you're also one of them. This is some anonymous man who we're not told who it is, but the, this particular accuser doesn't say that, 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 Jesus, or that Peter was with Jesus. He says, you're one of them, meaning you're one of the disciples. He identifies Jesus with the group. And of course that's true as well, isn't it? Ever since, ever since Jesus had walked along the shore of Galilee when Peter was out fishing and he called them to be a, a fisher of men, G Peter has been one of them, hasn't he? He's been one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. A second complete repudiation of Jesus and this time a repudiation of his disciples as well. 
But then we're told after an interval of about an hour, so an hour goes by, still another person speaks up. Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. So now Peter's accent gives him away. He's talking, and they realize he's a Galilean. And they're realizing that this man is lying through his teeth. No, no, no. I don't care what you say. You're one of them. You're one of them. You're from Galilee. It all adds up. John tells us that this man was a man uh, who was a a relative of Malchus. If we had read through John's account of the Passion events, you'd find that when Jesus was arrested, Peter cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest by the name of Malchus. Well, his third accuser is a relative of Malchus, so he's more intimately acquainted with the story than most. And he identifies Peter. Why does Peter do this? Why does he deny knowing Christ three times? He does it because he's terrified. He's overcome with abject fear. Fear drives all of his denials. And fear has driven many other men and women to do many other foolish things. Many who have pronounced a bold faith in Christ with their mouths have under pressure just watched it crumble like Peter. John Ortberg says, fear has created more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has, for it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. And that's exactly how Peter's living. Even though Jesus had predicted these very circumstances multiple times, even though Jesus had assured Peter that he had prayed for him, even though Peter has seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle, when the rubber hit the road, his faith is exposed as weak and sad and pathetic. And despite all his boastful promises, I'm ready to go to prison and die for you. When the pressure is on, he lies three times. He denies any association with Jesus. And he does it because he's terrified. But his fear doesn't last for long because it's pretty quickly replaced by a whole new experience. Shame. The kind of shame that comes from failure. Beginning in verse 60, this is what Luke records. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Before the words of that third denial even fully get off of Peter's tongue, out from the distance comes a sound. Somewhere nearby, a rooster crows. A rooster crows, and that sound just sort of hangs in the morning air, and all of a sudden it strikes a memory in Peter's mind, and his words come racing back. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And before he can even process the sound of the rooster crowing, something far more profound happens to Peter. Jesus turns, and he looks at Peter. He locks eyes with him in a moment. The very moment Peter says that third time, I don't know anything about him. Jesus looks at him, and Peter looks at Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus was at this particular moment. It could have been that he was on the second floor of the high priest's place there where the trial was starting to take place, and he looked out a window and made eye contact. Or it could have been in a moment where they were dragging him from 
the first trial to the second through the courtyard where Peter was, that perhaps as they're dragging him along, he passes by Peter right at that moment. In either case, the eyes of the Lord meet the eyes of Peter at the exact moment that he betrays Christ the third time. And in a moment, Peter's pride that turned into Peter's fear quickly dissolves into abject shame. Can you imagine that moment? He's absolutely blown it, and he knows it. And Jesus knows it. They had been through so much together. He had been Jesus' right-hand man. He had been the leader of the twelve. And now, in just a matter of hours, he's denied knowing him three times. And now the Son of God is looking him square in the eyes. He can't escape the gaze of Christ. Jesus, who's being dragged off eventually to his death, times this perfectly to look at him. And that look must have been like a dagger in Peter's heart. He could defend himself in front of a little servant girl, but in the eyes of Christ, there's no defense, right? You can't defend yourself, there's no hiding. There's no lying. There's no excuses. There's nobody else to blame. Lies aren't going to work. Jesus knows the truth, and so does Peter. And this must have been the worst moment in Peter's life. One moment, he's the Jesus primary guy. The primary guy in the inner circle, the next minute he denies knowing him. One moment, he's boasting of his faithfulness and his courage. The next moment, he's terrified and he's lying. And just like that, Peter's fear turns into shame. The weight of his failure comes crushing down on the man. And we're simply told he, he went out and he, he wept bitterly. He's so overcome with shame at, at meeting the eyes of Christ and what all that meant to him, he runs out weeping like a child and he's completely undone. He's broken to the very core of his, of his humanity. His failure is raw. And he can do nothing but weep. As the events begin to unfold, of course, we know Jesus is, held, is, is hauled away. He's crucified. He, he's put on trial actually multiple times, all to, to some degree in front of kangaroo courts. He's, he's mocked and he's beaten. He, a crown of thorns is jammed onto his head. He's made to carry his own cross up to Golgotha where he's nailed to the cross and where he dies as our, our sacrificial lamb, our substitutionary atonement for our sins. He's removed from the cross and he's buried. And through all of that, Peter's nowhere to be found. He's hiding away somewhere in shame. Wallowing in his failure. By the time we get to John chapter 21, we find that Peter has gone back to his old life. He's gone back to fishing. John 21, verse 2, Simon Peter called, uh, excuse me, Thomas called the twin Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They went out and got in a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Jesus is dead. Peter goes back to fishing. 
He abandons the ministry altogether. Any hope of, of any kind of a real future is gone. He goes back to his past because he now has no future. And his past was fishing. That was what he knew. And that's what he goes back to. It's not that being a professional fisherman is a bad sort of vocation. It wasn't. He was likely pretty content doing that before. But now it wasn't the same, was it? Because the reason he's back doing it is because he betrayed Christ. And he lost everything. And most of all, I think at times to Peter, felt like a bad dream. All of his spiritual ambition crashed and burned. And now all he's got to fall back on is his old life fishing. The man is living in failure. And he has no hope for the future. The last 24 hours of Peter's life have been an absolute disaster. An absolute disaster. You can, you can hardly overestimate the heights from which this man fell in such a short amount of time. And once Jesus is crucified and once he's buried, for Peter, there's absolutely no hope for a recovery. It's all over. It can't be fixed. It can't be fixed. His failure is sealed. Jesus is dead. And if Jesus Christ remains in that tomb, if, if Jesus stays in the tomb, if he is not raised, then Peter's pride was absolutely deadly. It was absolutely deadly. It set him up for a fall for which he could never, ever recover. It blinded him to the true nature of his faith. It destroyed any hope of truly understanding who Jesus really was and what he had come to do. If Christ isn't raised, there's no coming back from this. If Christ doesn't raise from the grave, Peter's fears are all justified. If Christ is truly dead and he doesn't rise, then Peter was right to lie. Peter, Peter did the right thing by covering his own backside. He should protect his own life at all costs because that's all there is. If Christ isn't raised, death has the final say. The grave is the end. And all of us, including Peter, should avoid any situation that threatens our life and puts us at risk. Because at the end of our lives is an exclamation point called death. And the only hope we have is to extend our own life. If Christ remains in the tomb and he isn't raised, then Peter's failure is absolutely final. There's no recovering from a triple out denial of Christ. There's no redemption for what he did. There's no hope for a future ministry. There's absolutely nothing that can be done. He will always be known as a man whose talk was big, but when the rubber hit the road, he was a coward and a liar who repudiated Christ. That's a life-defining failure. And with Jesus dead, there's no way for it to be redeemed. His hope that life could be something more is gone. All he's got is falling back on what he used to do. If Christ isn't raised, Peter is a dreadful man, living the rest of his days in the shame of failure. But praise God, Christ is raised from the grave, right? Praise God, Christ is raised from the grave, right? It makes all the difference in the world for this man. Luke reports in, in, in chapter 24 that on the early Sunday morning, the first day of the week, the two ladies go to the tomb and 
They go there to anoint Jesus' body with spices. They had had to hurriedly bury Jesus because the Sabbath was quickly approaching and didn't have time to, to, to properly anoint his body with all of the 75 to 100 pounds of spices that they had to do. So they did as much as they could, got him in the grave before the Sabbath, and now they were coming back on the first day of the week to finish what they had started. It was really an act of love. It was really an act of, of concern and respect for Jesus. And they come back expecting to do that, and they find that the tomb is empty, that Christ is not there. And multiple things happen. Angels appear and describe all of these things. And we won't spend our time this morning going into it, but I think you understand that part of the story. But in, in Luke 24, he, Luke reports something very interesting to us. It's relevant to what we're talking about. He says, It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women uh, who told these things to the apostles. So they found out the tomb was empty, and they run back to the apostles, and they report to them, Peter is with the apostles. But these words seemed to them, that's the apostles, like an idle tale. They did not believe them. These women are ecstatic that, that Christ is not in the tomb. They've concluded that he's risen from the grave, and they hustle back to tell the apostles, and all the apostles, you would think, would be celebrating like there's no end. And what do they do? They say, you ladies are crazy. You're out of your mind. You're just rambling like, like insane people. That is all the disciples except for one. We're told Peter rose and he ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter, this man who's been living in this abject shame, he doesn't fully believe at this point that Christ is raised, but there is a glimmer of hope. And all he needed was a glimmer of hope. He sees that glimmer of hope, and out the door he races to see if there's anything to it. Even when he looks at the tomb, he isn't completely convinced. It's not until Jesus makes a personal visit by the Sea of Galilee that Peter finally comes to terms with the reality that Christ is risen. He finds out what you and I have to come to understand. But there's one simple truth that changes everything, and that's this. Christ is risen. And because Christ is risen, there's hope for proud people. They can be humbled. Listen to what we, we hear in John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you, do, you, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus encounters Simon Peter, and he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Except he doesn't call him Peter, he calls him what? He calls him Simon, because that was his name before he came to Christ. And quite often when Peter acted like his old self, his old unredeemed self, Jesus would simply subtly call him by that name as a reminder of how he was behaving. And Jesus simply asked him a question. 
He doesn't engage him at the level of his betrayal. He doesn't ask him about the three denials in the courtyard. He doesn't say, Peter, what were you thinking? How could you do such a thing? He simply says to him what? Peter, do you, do you love me? Do you love me? He uses the word agapao, which is a kind of love that implies total commitment. How could Peter possibly answer that question, right? He says, you know I love you, Lord. But Peter uses a different word for love. He doesn't use the word agapao that means total commitment kind of love. He uses the word phileo, which simply means strong affection. And it's a very subtle thing in the language, but simply what's happening here is he's saying to, to Jesus, Lord, you know my life. You know my fears. You know my failure. You know that I can't claim that kind of love for you. No, I don't love you like that. But I really like you a lot. There's love in my heart for you. It's, 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 nowhere, it's nowhere near where it ought to be, but it's there. And all of a sudden, this, all of Peter's prideful, arrogant bravado is crushed. Do you remember what he said at the beginning of this thing? I'll die for you. I'll go to jail with you right now. And it was a lie. Totally didn't understand who he was, but now Peter understands who he is. Yeah, I'm nobody. I don't even, I love you, but I don't even love you like I ought to love you. I can't even claim that. The best I can do is say, I'm trying. There's love in my heart for you. It's not perfect. It's not what it ought to be, but it's there. And Jesus doesn't crush Peter. He gives him love and he gives him grace. He says, all right, Peter, all right, now that you're appropriately humbled and now that you have a, a true and accurate appraisal of your own self, now you're useful to me. You see, the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to whom? To the humble. And Peter's a humble man. Because Christ is raised, there's, there's hope for proud people. If you're here today and you're filled with spiritual pride and you think highly, more highly of yourself than you ought to and you look at yourself and you compare yourself to everybody else and you think, man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty spiritual gal. I'm a pretty spiritual guy. I mean, these other people might be living in sin, but not me. These other people might be confused about their theology, but I got all the answers. I got it figured out. You need to understand because Christ is risen, there's hope for that kind of pride. It can be humbled. And prideful people can be made useful for the kingdom. Peter also finds out because Christ is raised that there's hope for failures. They can be restored. Isn't that great to know? That there's hope for people who failed? That there's hope for people who've really blown it? That, 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 that when we fail, our failures aren't final? That's what Peter thought as long as Jesus was in the tomb. But he realizes now that Jesus is raised. Wait a minute, this failure isn't the end of my story. It doesn't have to define my life forever. There's more to be written here. There's more to be written. Jesus says to him, Peter, go feed my lambs. Go tend my sheep. Go feed my sheep. Peter, fishing is not your destiny. Fishing for men, that's what I called you to. Now go get after it. Your failure hasn't disqualified you. It isn't final. You get another chance. Because I'm alive, there's opportunity for second chances. And then he tells Peter the most amazing words that man ever heard. He says, Peter, when you're old, 
You're going to stretch out your hands, and another's going to dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. Luke tells us this, he said, to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Peter, here's the best news of it all. You get a second chance. There's going to come another time, Peter, when, when you're going to have the opportunity to stand up for me when your life is on the line. And guess what, Peter? This time, you'll make it. This time, you won't fail. This time, you won't fall. This time, you'll make it all the way to the end. You'll honor me, not only with your life, but by your death. The thing that you so boasted that you were willing to do but weren't at the beginning, you will now, as a humble man, actually do. You'll actually do it, Peter. Encountering the resurrected Jesus, it changed everything for Peter. His failure was forgiven. His shame was erased. His pride was crushed. His hope was restored. But it wasn't just that. This man no longer deals with fear anymore either. Peter becomes the most courageous of the apostles from this point on. You flip over to the book of Acts, which we don't have time to do this morning because you have an Easter ham in the oven or the crock pot or something else that will burn if we go to Acts. I trust you'll go there on your own. And you'll see from the very beginning, Peter standing up and preaching boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. It didn't matter who the audience was. It didn't matter if it was a mixed audience of people he didn't know. It didn't matter if it was the most powerful ruler in the region. Peter stands up and he says, this Jesus, you crucified, he's raised, deal with it. Repent and trust him. That your sins might be forgiven. Peter's no longer afraid. Because Christ is risen, the grave no longer terrifies him. Because Christ is risen, he isn't afraid to die anymore. He understands that because Christ has come from the grave, he too will be resurrected with Christ. And the worst thing that people can do is kill him, and all that's going to do is usher him right into the presence of the Lord. And Peter's fear is crushed. Never again will this man be driven by fear. You see, the secret to overcoming the fear of death is to die. To die to yourself so you can live for Christ. And Peter now loves the resurrected Christ more than he loves his own life. And he's not afraid. There's so much more that could be said about Peter, but that's sufficient for today. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything in this man's life. Everything. The question is, what difference has it made in your life? Has any change come to your life because Christ is risen? What difference does it make? It's one thing to gather on Easter Sundays and to sing songs and to celebrate the resurrection, but what difference does it make? What impact has it had on your life? How would your life be different if Christ was still in the grave? Well, if you're proud, you'd be trapped in your pride. If you're a failure and there are ways in which you've blown it in your life, there's no opportunity for redemption if Christ isn't risen. If you're a person who's consumed with fear, primarily the fear of death, you'll always be consumed with that fear because death is a real threat to you. But if Christ is risen, if Christ is risen, that changes everything. That means whatever failures there are in your life, however dark your past might be, there's opportunity for redemption because Christ is raised. You can be forgiven. You can be given eternal life. 
Christ can erase your past and give you a, a new future, one that you've never even imagined, better than you could actually imagine. Christ can liberate you, the risen Christ, from fear. Listen, the last couple of years of life in this world in which we live have given us all a lot of opportunities to live in fear. Fear of people, fear of viruses, fear of whatever. Ladies and gentlemen, because Christ is risen, we don't have to be captive to fear. Fear should never be driving our thoughts and our emotions and our decisions. Because Christ has conquered death. There is no threat that can really harm us, is there? The worst that can happen to you and me here is that we can die, and by the way, we will die. I have a friend who was a doctor, and one time we were having a conversation, and I said, did you ever think about the fact that you're really in a terrible profession because every single one of your patients dies? And it's true. We'll all die. But because Christ is risen, that's nothing to be afraid of. It's simply a doorway in the presence of the risen Savior who defeated death in his resurrection and who opened a way to eternal life. If there's ever been a time for Christians to live in a world with boldness and courage, it's now. It's now. The world needs to see that. Our culture, our city needs to see bold Christians living their faith without fear. And because Christ is risen, you can live that way. Because Christ is risen, we should live that way. Listen, I don't know what the Spirit of God has impressed upon your heart as we've walked through these texts this morning, but I trust that, that he's impressed something upon your heart, some way you need to respond to all this. So let's take a moment and pray together. If you would just bow your head and close your eyes with me. Maybe you're here today and you're just, you've walked into this room riddled with fear. Some circumstances happened in your life and you don't know how things are gonna turn out and you're worried sick. And your fear and your anxieties are driving decisions and making you or leading you to do foolish things. Maybe this morning you just need to come back to the reality that Christ is risen. And because he's conquered our worst enemy and because he's alive and in control of our lives, sovereignly reigning over us, you have no reason to be afraid. Look to the risen Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and there's some miserable failure in your life, something that you've done that you're ashamed of and you're worried that this is, this is gonna define who you are and you think that maybe there's no coming back from it. Won't you look to the risen Christ this morning and remember Peter and remember that there's forgiveness that flows full and free from Christ, that there's no failure that's final no matter how epic it is. That if Jesus, excuse me, if Peter can, can deny Christ three times and be forgiven, whatever you've done can be forgiven. A failure doesn't have to mark your life. Look to the risen Christ. Maybe you're overcome with spiritual pride this morning. If the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to see it, that's a miracle. Because blind blindness comes with pride but there's hope for you you can be humbled and you can be made useful for the kingdom look to the lamb of God who was slain for your sin remember the price for your, for your sin 
for your unbelieving heart, even for your pride. I pray that he would humble you this morning, that he would make you useful, that he'd give you a, a, a clear and accurate assessment of your own self, and that he would crush your ego and make you useful for his kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you just came because it's Easter, and that's what people do on Easter. I pray that you would see Christ this morning as your only hope. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, you have no hope, but if he is risen from the dead, it changes everything. Your sins can be forgiven because he's paid the price for them. Your past can be wiped away and your future can be secured by simply repenting of your sin, entrusting your life to the Lord Jesus, receiving him as Lord and Savior. And you can do that right now where you're seated. However you need to respond this morning, I pray that you wouldn't walk out of these doors and not do it. Obey him this morning. Obey the risen Christ. There's hope in him and it changes everything. Lord, we exalt you this morning. It's been our great joy to celebrate your resurrection in song and in prayer. It's been our joy to remember the cross and to remember your empty tomb. And along with millions of other believers around the world today, we worship you, the risen Christ. But I pray for my friends who are in this room on this day, that by your spirit you would draw them to obedience as you see fit. For we pray it in your holy name. Amen.